Hey, yo, artists and musicians. Who, us? Yeah, do you want your own vinyl records? Yeah, but I can't order a thousand of them. Or wait like a year to get them. Yeah, we're going on tour in two months. Check out our friends lathecuts.com. They'll make you vinyl singles in quantities as small as 50 copies and as quickly as three or four weeks. Get out of here. You heard me right. All their pricing is a la carte and they can help you pick a package that fits your budget. Okay, who we talk to about this? You need to email my buddy Mike. His address is lathecuts at yahoo.com. And if you mention low profile, you'll get a 10% overrun on your order. So if I order 50 records? Mike's going to send you 55. If I order 75, I guess you will get 82 and a half? Something like that. Remember, you got to mention low profile to get that deal, and it won't be around forever. What was that address again? That's lathecuts at yahoo.com. Custom made records in small quantities. Mention low profile to get a 10% overrun on your order. And emailing now. Hey, hey, it's Markley, and you are listening to Low Profile. Today, I am handing the show over to my friend Matt Marillo. He's talking with John Dwyer of the OCs. This is a track from their latest album, Protein Threat. It's called Mizma. OCs have been kicking out jams that I love, man. Some of the best, like, hard psych rock. Uh, they've got some really soft, gentle, pretty stuff out there, too. They used to be called OCS, then the OCs, the current iteration of the band, is spelled O-S-E-E-S, one word. Variable band name, I like that, you know? It just uh, depends on the mood, I guess. John and Matt talk about uh, all the other side projects along the years, too. Uh, Coach Whips, Pink and Brown, Krang, you name it. They cover it, and you get to hear a little bit of it. Low Profile is supported by listeners. You can do that at patreon.com slash lowprofile. We also get in-kind support here from San Francisco Street Bakery, Schwartz's Deli, Rainy Day Records, Schurler Easy Premium Shitty American Lager, from Three Magnets Brewing here in Olympia, and Old School Pizzeria. Now, let's check out the episode here. It's Matt talking to John Dwyer. Matt Murillo! <laughs> John Dwyer. How you doing, man? Thanks for doing this uh, low-profile podcast. Of course. I'm standing in for Mark Lee Morrison. You know, just to rehash for listeners that may not be super familiar if you could just quickly give like a just a early days set the scene as a little kid for yourself let's see real quick synopsis of my childhood i was pretty fortunate you know i uh my mom and my dad got married very young i believe it was sort of uh because she was knocked up kind of thing because she was 18 and he was i believe like 28 or 30 maybe whoa and not only on the scale of time difference, but he was six foot seven and she was five foot two. So the whole thing must have been a mess. I can't even imagine how, how the physicality of it worked. But I was born and they are very different people. So uh, they didn't last long. And I have no memory of my parents being together. They got divorced. My dad moved to Massachusetts and married another woman. And my mom got together with this guy, Robert Hussey, and married him. And he basically kind of raised me with my mom. I saw my dad every other weekend. But Rhode Island is great, man. It's a small-ass place. It's a port town. There's a bit of nightlife there, you know, on a much smaller scale. But there's the, all, mostly because of the colleges, I guess. There's Brown and, and uh, PC and Risby and Johnson & Wales. So there's just a shitload of colleges there. It's a real New England place. 
So there's a huge crop of young people every year. So by the time I got old enough to do drugs and actually start listening to music and go to things like raves and punk shows and shit, uh, there was a lot for me to do. So I was really fortunate. And my mom was fairly liberal. She was secretary at URI, which is, I believe, maybe a non-existent school now. So she would take me to work a lot. Both my parents worked. My dad was a mechanic. My stepdad was like a handyman uh, custodian. My mom was a secretary. She was surrounded by a pretty diverse cast of people, and that was the kind of the world I was brought up in. Like, really lucky that my mom was. I feel like I, I really am glad I grew up with my mom. Is what I'm saying, I guess. Yeah. Because she, she's a pretty open-minded person, and was definitely very supportive of me doing whatever I want. I think I was a good kid. I didn't get in a lot of trouble. I coasted through school because I hated it so much that I did the bare minimum to get by, which I did. So I got by with like a sounds familiar. Like a C average, probably maybe B if I'm lucky. D is for diploma. Yeah, hey man, as long as I get through it, and then you know I was supposed to be the first person in my family that went to college, and uh, <clears throat> I didn't. And I remember my mom rolls with the punches so good that. I was like, I'm not going to college. I'm done. Like, after I graduated 12th grade, I was like, I'm out of here. And she basically was like, really? And then she was like, oh, well. Like, she got over it in, like, the space of a breath. Growing up with, you know, a mechanic dad and a handyman stepdad, are you pretty handy? Did you, like, learn how to do? Um, You know, my dad is really good at cars. Like, he can can build a car from the chassis up. Cause he's, because him being six foot seven, he built, like, a... As far as I recall, he built his own dragster. There was like a Model T hot rod being built in the basement for most of my childhood. He races. He still does. So there's a lot of that shit. I know jack shit about cars. Um, I'm not sure if that was like to rebel against the parental unit or what, but I just had no interest in learning about mechanical things. Over the years, I've sort of fallen ass backwards by process of elimination and fucking things up. I've gotten pretty okay at fixing stuff. Yeah. But I still, I, I drive an old Beetle and I still take it to a hundred year old mechanic because he will fix it right, right and not make it dangerous. So not necessarily, no. They can fix everything. My stepdad too. They're like miracle workers with their hands, you know? So like, what was your first like favorite band? What was your, like, when did music just become, was there like a moment when you're like, holy sh**? I think it was just ACDC, man. I just, well, I remember that was the first band that made me want to play guitar. And then my parents bought me like a Chevelle cherry red, like heavy metal guitar and a crate mm. practice amp and got me a couple guitar lessons. And I took those. And then basically I, that was right around when I was like 16, I think. And then I moved out when I was 17. My mom had my brother much, much uh, younger than me who is uh, really uh, disabled. He mm. has like cerebral palsy, but he's also three and a half months premature. So it's not just a physical thing. It's like pretty much across the board. She's been taking care of him the whole time. And because of that, I was just starting to get into drugs and sort of wanting to hang out more. So it was just like an executive decision to maybe like give my parents some space to take care of my brother at home because basically it was like VNA was in and out, the nursing association and stuff. So I left really early and moved to Providence, which was really nearby yeah. and had met a, crowd of sort of roused about type people and moved into a huge empty building with them. <laughs> and so when you're in Rhode Island early on, you're playing in bands like landed and what else did you do other projects? There were only really, there were a few projects, but or the first band was called Krang. Jeff Rosenberg from Pink and Brown, who went to Brown, and I met him because I worked at the cafe slinging coffee underneath the apartment he was living in while he went to Brown, and we just sort of hit it off over bands like like nerdy, 
stuff like Palvo, like really guitar-centric sort of alternative alternative tuning stuff. And he was sort of friends with or himself booking shows uh, for a lot of bands at Brown. So Brown would bring these like crazy, like, you know, now I know because I'm playing college shows and shit, you'll just play an empty room that they like bring a PA into. So I get to see like, Lots of bands there, like, and there were a lot of local bands on there too, but like the makeup came through and like Crown Hate Ruin and uh, like just tons of like weird stuff. And then of course all the clubs downtown had all ages shows. So I was seeing like lots of hardcore shows. Drop Dead is from Warwick. So they were playing a lot and bringing a lot of hardcore bands through and um, just kind of got lucky again. Just like my whole life has been fortunate in like meeting one person who would be a keystone to a whole group of people that I would get along with. So Jeff was like sort of my doorway to people at Brown University and RISD and thus Fort Thunder. No, that was in San Francisco. Jeff moved to San Francisco before I left Providence. He was already there for a year or so, and he was living with some alumni from Brown, I believe, on Valencia on 16th. And uh, I went and slept on their porch for a month and basically had a job in an apartment lined up within a week of being there because I don't f*** around. Yeah. So I got a job painting houses and uh, moved into a room that had no... <laughs> A room that was basically a thorough way to get to other bedrooms on the second floor of a warehouse with no windows. That was disgusting. And I lived there for about a month and then promptly started dating a girl who lived there. And then I don't really remember where I lived right after that. That was sort of a blur of a time. But yeah, Pink and Brown started in the basement of that warehouse I was living in where they had a, a trap door on the floor that just went down to another windowless room and we started practicing there during the day because nobody was around, you know, but that place had had shows while I lived there. Lightning bolt came through town and played there. Uh, uh, face, which is Matt Shapiro who went on to do Nigel Peppercock and he booked at chemos for years. And then he owned the elbow room in San Francisco. His band played there early on. So lots of, lots of, like I just like always stuck my thumb in anywhere that had uh, music related vibes like that DIY thing for sure. I think in Pink and Brown, I was that was when I first met you. You came through Houston, and I met you when you were doing. Pink wow, and Brown. that long ago, huh? Yeah, and you played at Natsuo. I oh, love Natsuo. Weird place, and so, but I'm I'm guessing that wasn't like your first tour or anything like that. You had toured some before that. I it may have been, man. I mean, not my first ever tour, but that might have been Pink and Brown's first tour. You know, Pink and Brown didn't tour a ton of times. We did probably two, maybe three tours. That was one of those bands that. Nobody gave a shit about, and then we broke up, and then when we came back, suddenly we had a following, and people were like, yeah, I was at the early shows, like acting like it was like this mythos of having been a fan, but really, my memory that, of I it I call is, that the mummies. The, nobody gave a fuck yeah, about the yeah. mummies until they were gone. I remember watching old mummies footage, and people in the crowd were like, fuck you! Shut like, up! Just yelling, at, yelling at them. Yeah, but there's yeah, that new, around, video of them like, playing New York, and like, Trent, one of his keys is stuck, like just blaring the whole time, and... Yep. They're so that wasted and no one cares. Man. That's why they're so inspiring. They're like one of those early garage sort of like 90s garage things, like the Guitar Wolf refusing to tune for a whole set. So by the end, it just sounds like a dump truck driving. It's uh, a, a, such a punk catastrophe. I always love that Were those kind of things uh, in your in your ears when you were like starting to yeah. do Coach yeah. Lips type stuff? Yeah, absolutely. By the time I left Providence, there was a lot of good music shops in Providence. There's a place called In Your Ear. This is like pre-Armageddon uh, shop and stuff. Like back in the day, there was a lot of good little music shops in, in Providence that turned me on to stuff. So I actually owned Mummy's Records. God, I think I bought them for like $5 maybe yeah. back in the day. I, I had started buying records as a kid there. And when I moved to San Francisco, I brought my one footlocker of records. And now, God, if I, I decided the other day, I was talking to my girlfriend, I was like, if I ever have to move houses again, I'm just going to throw myself off the roof. I'm not doing this again. 
but back then it was like you know one one crate of records and the mummies were in there and the oblivions i saw the oblivions in providence play for like 30 people and they were fucking unbelievable but that stuff definitely inspired me to go down the hole of like digging up old garage punk bands you know and uh and seeing bands people like uh in particular the oblivions and the gories doing really primitive stuff primitive recordings and uh and just really uh I don't know what the word I'm looking like a cathartic thing for me to like watch them live where they're not focused on the presentation or the uh, the knowledge behind the music, but just playing it like really like bare bones like that. Yeah, it's like really the, the, of getting, getting it out, getting the, the yayas out. Yeah, just like a visceral thing, you know. Around the time, yeah, around the time that Pink and Brown came through Houston, one of the guys that was booking shows, Russell Etchen gave me your demo and he's like uh should we do a, a show for this band they want to I'm like, i listened to the cd of i guess it was hands on the controls Yeah, we used to mail out cassettes. <laughs> yeah, and I was just like, yeah, 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 you should book this show. Oh, yeah, I that band, Cotrips in particular, I mean, Pro, uh, Pink and Brown was definitely like an homage to Rhode Island. Like, all those bands definitely were like heavily still in my mind landed, Lightning Bolt, Force Field, Arab on Radar. But by the time Cotrips came around, I'd sort of developed a, a different taste. Because I know when we played in Providence, we always had a good time. But I definitely got the impression that people gave way less of a shit about garage rock at the time in Providence. That was like, Providence was always about like outweirding or out aggressiveness to like, bands. You know, there was like, you know, there was a very tight knit community, so it had to be this very specific thing. Right. San Francisco was a little bit more open minded because it was a bigger crowd, I think. And I owe all that to, definitely to like Connor Records and all that stuff, uh, Crypt, you know, in the red, because those were the bands, you know, I probably. I don't know about Goner or uh, Crypt. I probably sent shit to. I know I definitely sent stuff to Larry Hardy at In the Red, and uh, never heard back from him. The son of a bitch. But I know now, years later, we go get lunch and uh, we can laugh about it. But uh, you know, being a kid and like mailing out cassettes, I, I even got back letters from places. I think I got a letter from Drag City being like, "Thanks, but no thanks," kind of thing. This is how old, old I am. Is that people were mailing back responses? In the oh mail, yeah, for know. sure. I remember those days. So. Um, Coach Whips in San Francisco was, what was the like, you know, when I think of San Francisco, I think of, I mean, there's all these camps to me. I'm an outsider, so there's all these camps, and I was just such a fan of the whole uh, Super Team and Radio X, Rick Record Labels, Supercharger Band, and Bobby Teens, and Brentwoods, and of course the Mummies and all that stuff. Was there any, like, crossover for you guys like did you hang out did you play shows with any of those bands no or any of those not people? at all i was from a totally different generation than those guys it's funny because i only know about two of the bands you just mentioned i don't even know them now yeah. but it was weird i felt like our version of it was a little bit less uh like retro like they were really like pro 60s i know i've been to those people's shows i've met russell kwan a handful of times i've seen the mummies a million times they were always like the trash women and all that shit. They were very 60s. Even the Purple yeah. Onion, Tom Guido's whole scene, yeah. uh, Dura Delinquent, and all those people. Very 60s, like stripy shirts and like like dressing the part. Whereas the stuff that I that I was brought up on was way more contemporary version of it. And I, I could appreciate some of the bands, but it really wasn't my scene, you know? For sure. I remember hearing Hand on Controls. I was like, yeah, this is like, I hear the Gories in there. And I never felt a sense of you guys crossing paths or crossing over. No. Also, a big a big influence that I never talk about was Do Rag. Like they were Bob Log was the reason Killer. I made that microphone. They were so good live when I saw them in Providence, and they Killer. were the epitome of simplistic live, like a 
Budweiser box full of bras and panties for a kick drum and a tin pail. Have you listened to them lately? Yeah, they're fantastic. They're so good. I just feel, I I do, I listen to them now, but with my like 2021 ears, I'm like, this is so bitchin', but. Yeah. Man, this is like just some sharecropper rock, dude. What are these guys, these (laughs) kids (laughs) doing? Live was such an experience with them too because their records are great, whatever, and their, their all their merch was excellent. They were always pretty funny, excellent. like you know, like sort of barbecue style merchandise. But uh, live, they were such a spectacle, and they would, you know, on their rider would be one tin pail and a Budweiser box of Tall Boy bottles, and then they would take the bottles out, and that would be the kick drum for the night. Like yeah. everything they would play would get ruined, and then they would move on to the next show and have to acquire new gear. That was, in fact, from around the house. I feel so lucky. I got to see them two or three times. So me great. too. Me I too. found out. Dude. I found out about them through Lacey Swain from. Oh yeah. From uh, yeah, Lacey, Sub Pop, Lacey's, and she was like, a, I, if a, I, I could be fucking this story up, but her story was she was living in Austin, and she like called me. She's like, holy, shit, I just saw this thing you got to see. She was walking through campus at University of Texas, and they were just like playing in the girls' restroom or something. That's the story. At least I tell <laughs> my, I made up that she told me. <laughs> Probably couldn't get away with that today, but yeah, that sounds like Bob Log. My favorite story about him was we toured with him. It was just Bob Log, not not Dureg. Um, but when we got, we were dropping him off the Canadian border. I think we were sharing a van or something. So there's a reason why we were bringing him. But we were like in Seattle, and we drove him up to the border to go to Vancouver without us. And as we were, you know, he got out of the car, grabbed his guitar case, whatever, and his motorcycle helmet. And then he hugged me and shoved his hand down my pants, and I was like, what the. F- and he's like, don't open your pants until you get away from the border. Oh so we God. came back in the car and I was like, Bob just shoved his hand down my pants. And then we drove and we got like a couple miles away and I opened my pants with just a giant bag of weed. <laughs> I was like, of course he wouldn't just hand me the bag of weed earlier and be like, here, you can have this. He had to do it in a way that was very uh, hilarious. And that nice. dude, that dude's a legend, man. He, legend, he, for sure. What a good dude on the road. I always had a pleasure to travel with the guy. I kind of miss him. I should probably try and hunt him down. I don't know where he is now. John, um, as the coach whips continued on and progressed, were you ever like surprised at? I mean, I don't know what your expectations were when you started the band, but like most garage bands, I'm assuming pretty low. Were you ever like, what was your take on it when you people just started really caring? <laughs> um, you know, I'm always surprised when anybody likes anything I do. That's a great feeling, and it's just like frosting on the cake. But coach whips. You know, we, we were contemporaries with a lot of bands that didn't get their due, I feel like. There are a lot of fantastic bands from back then that I'm just like, what the hell? Like, how did this go under the radar? I think something to do with our tenacity, you know, we were always playing. We were always touring. So, like, my, my MO was, like, if you play, people will see you eventually, you know? Yeah. If you put on a good show, then, you know, word of mouth will start spreading around and the shows will get better. And Code Trips would do that thing, you know, very Provident style where we would play on the floor or we would play in the bathroom or something like that. And it was really simple. There was like no gear. So we could kind of play anywhere. And I think people really liked that. And it was sort of, it was very much a Providence thing. But I got to say, like back in the day, not a lot of people did that. So, you know, people, if you play, we would just start playing the second the band finished on stage across oh, the Oh, I remember. Oh, I know. And people, yeah, people really, you know, that was like, it just like gives somebody like a little spark on their ass. You know what I mean? Like that was always kind of fun. And uh, I think that aspect of it, the real like simplistic and kind of boneheaded uh, spectacle of it got us some fans and their friends liked it too, you know? And like, you know, I, I wouldn't ever these days like pop on a coach whoops record and listen to it personally right but i i feel like i would probably would have enjoyed us myself if i had seen it back when i was young it was very much a young person's game as well like now you know now i would see it and be like eh, you know sure. but I, i've also done reunion tours where i'm like i don't want to play these songs anymore i, feel <laughs> I uh you're reminding me of a show in houston i don't know who you played with i think i may have even booked it but i don't remember who you played with and 
It was at Walters or some place. Some is that the place where you played under the moose head? No, you guys played and you set up while the opening band was playing. And you just, as soon as they were done, you just started ripping it from behind the pool table. And the crowd went, a And <laughs> you jumped on the pool table and like headbutted the one of those or goofy, ornate pool table lights. Like you would see at a Shakey's Pizza or some stupid <laughs> and it yeah. broke the light and I remember the owner of the bar was just off her nut so mad oh, at yeah. me just like what the f I'm a, like we made a lot of bar owners really mad but the funny thing was was for every person that got really mad and she was totally right to be mad might I add because what? how disrespectful but at the same time uh, we would every now and then like okay the perfect example of that was the first time I ever played at the SF Eagle we played outside I remember asking the bartender slightly aggressively like hey we're gonna play outside I hope that's okay and he basically like counteracted my aggression with his own aggression where he was like I don't give a where you play and we played outside and they had a fire pit and I jumped in the fire pit and it like kind of melted my shoes and then afterwards he came up to me and he was like, hey, were you, you were the guy in that last band, right? And it was the same guy I'd asked if we could play outside. And he obviously didn't remember what my face looked like because he didn't even give me the time of day. And I was like, here we go. He's going to get mad. And he was like, that was amazing. And right. he's like, you're welcome back anytime. So like anytime there was a, a bar owner that would get upset, there was usually another bar owner who was like, loved it, don't care about the, the, the dumb thing you did, you know, and they would be like, come back. And then, you know, so... It just depends on who you get because I, I look back on some of the shit I did. I'm like, yeah, I would be mad too, probably. Let me ask you this. Um, we have uh, CJ in common, Girlsville Records, and uh, I've been talking to her in leading up to this, and I'm, uh, mm -hmm. man, I'm just so pumped that she's in Portland, nearby me here in Olympia, and been working with her with some of my, my projects and stuff. Uh, she crushes. I love that lady, and oh. I have nothing but nothing but the best things and the best uh, same happy happy to continue working with her yeah sure. can you can you tell us a little bit about how she ended up with you know demos and all this stuff and kind of yeah. seems like she's i correct me if i'm wrong but it appears to me that like she's kind of the holder of the coach whips uh yeah she is you know she has a legacy more right than now even i do yeah i mean so when we first met it was at a show and uh, she approached me, and um, basically, me and me and her were into the same drugs, which were gnarly drugs, and uh, somehow just hit it off. That's how it was with that stuff sometimes. And she really dug the show. And basically, I think the version of the story I heard her tell, which, as far as I can recall, is true, was she was like, "Do you want to do a record?" And and I was like, "Sure." And she was like, "That's it, just sure." Like, there's no conversation. And I was like, "Look, nobody's banging down my door, so if you have money." and you want to do a CD or something or an LP, then let's do it, you know? So I'm sure because of the drug consumption, I was probably handing her whatever I had on hand, demos, uh, rough cuts, you know? She she probably has more than I do in terms of the archive, but definitely uh, I just gave her everything and she put stuff out until we were able to find a, a label that, you know, I had then after a while, I hadn't seen her for quite a while because we both sort of spun off our own orbits, but... Uh, you know, I'm really glad to see she's doing well and obviously kicking ass now. So anytime she approaches me about putting something out, she's like, can I do this? I'm like, yep. It's the same story it always is there with me and her where I'm like, sure. Yeah, so, man. And that um, Be Gay Do Crime comp is bitching that just yeah, came out. Just got the, I just got the LPs in the mail like two days ago. I'm looking I at it. I haven't right got now. mine yet. How does it look? Fantastic. Uh, I mean, I'm an LP man, so I'm really always happy to see something on the 12-inch format, you know? Man, that's great. I can't wait to get my hands on mine. Um, yeah, but I'm wondering if I had any more thoughts about CJ. I mean, we could go probably a full hour talking about CJ. Cause... I'm sure there's plenty of stories I could tell that I shouldn't tell <laughs> in the podcast, so I'll just, I'll I'll, just leave it where, where, where I'll share is. all my texts from her with you later. They're hilarious. Um, 
probably all stories. She's a, as my mom would say, she's a real hot sh- so. <laughs> Um, who are the Trogs? The Trogs, one of the one of the best and ugliest bands in the history of mankind. So much. Uh, who are the Who are the Trogs with oh, W's? Oh, my Trogs, my Trogs. Oh, it was uh, just an homage to a band I loved, and uh, it was just a really grindy version of that. The funny thing about that was I was playing drums and doing backup vocals and that, and it turns out, for as simple as the Trog sound, that shit's actually kind of hard to play. Like those songs are. <laughs> deceptively simple sounding and uh the trogs the real trogs have so many uh great great records even up past their hits and of course there's the archival fairy dust recordings of them where they're arguing with each other about how they need another hit and it's just they were they're such a far out band like the original so of course i i rarely get to do covers yeah. so much so that one was a really fun little project and we only did two shows one of which was the eagle and it was amazing and then the next one was at a place i want to say it was 54 tahama which was like a little arts like sort of draggy little warehouse space that way deep downtown and nobody gave a shit about us so we should have left it with just the one sf eagle show because that i think that might be online somewhere oh really? but it was a really fun yeah it was like i'll see if i can find it and dig tell it me up, the, it was spell stuff. it for me so i know the official spelling T uh, T R A W G G S, I think. So but I'll, I'll, I'll give it funny. So it, was the, it was at the SF Eagle, and it was two songs. I remember. I think it was on the. It might be on the Double Death DVD that came out on Narnak. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the extras, there might be a couple of videos on there. But basically, it was like one of those random shows where everybody was dancing and everybody knew the words to the song, so everybody was like jumping around us and singing the song. And that was. We should have just left it there because that was the perfect night to do it, and and I it, we weren't very good. Like I definitely was failing on the drums, so it was like just a mess, but in a really perfect way. I love it. But I I still love the trogs. Every now and then, like just now in Mexico City, like a year and a half ago, I bought a bunch of Mexican trogs little piece that I found that I was like, what? Rad. Yeah. So good. So uh, one of my favorite Dwyer bands uh, that I feel is unsung is uh, Yikes. Can you tell oh, yeah. me about tell me about Yikes, man? I want to know. I don't know. There's a, I don't know a whole lot about it. I never got to see it. I have a record or two. Ben McCosker from Low Records said, because I was trying to get him to put it out. That was also at sort of the peak of my drug consumption, and probably when I had turned the corner into darkness and not necessarily, probably should have been culling that at that point. But uh, 
Ben McCosker referred to it as, quote, not your best vehicle, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, uh, that's like, uh, I'll take that to the grave with me. Probably but, why uh, I loved it. Was, I, I mean, hey, you know, I did it. It happened. There's, there's no take see backsies. But uh, it was me, Mike Donovan from Sick Alps, and uh, Eric Park from Curse of the Birthmark at the time, and who went on to do Fuck Wolf and lots of other bands. Eric's been in a ton of bands. He was a Providence guy, actually, too, but we were sort of periphery. In Providence, I didn't really know him until I moved to San Francisco. But he's a phenomenal guitar player and a very weird musician. Um, that band was just a mess, man. It was like we played in LA, I remember, and everybody hated us except for David Yao. <laughs> so it was like one of those bands where, like, David Yao was like, "Hey, fuck them!" I thought it was great, and I was like, "That's all I needed." Yeah, I'm but good. it was a lot of a lot of drugs, a lot of darkness, and I don't. We didn't play, we didn't tour, we didn't get along particularly great. Uh, me and Eric didn't get along too hot we're friends now but like sometimes you just can't work with people we were not a great combination and i think i kicked eric out of the band and mike was like well if eric's leaving i'm leaving too so he just bailed and i was into the band but we did get a couple eps out which have been reissued over various formats over the years but you know it was recorded even terrible for me like that's definitely to me that just reminds me of drugs like just like listening yeah. to that record you're like yuck like it's just like a, a recorded conversation of two people arguing or something. So I have no regrets, but I don't have a ton of fond memories. I have a lot of funny stories from that band, but again, they're not stories I can really tell on the podcast. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I just love that. It's a, it's a sham. And like you just listen to even the records and you're like, Oh, this is, f this is a shambles right here. Yeah. Yeah. And just certain tones in it are egregiously alienating and aggressive on purpose in a way that I find really irritating now. And I was recording them, so I'm like, what the hell was I doing, you know? Right. One of the drugs. funny you things about drugs. the band, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I didn't know what I was doing. I was being an idiot. But uh, one of the things that's funny that I can tell about that, and I'm not sure if I told the story before, but one of the EPs, the second half, is a fake live recording. Mm. And we made it extra blown out to sound like, I mean, that was like, it's so blown out. It's just an ugly recording. But on the second half, I was mastering it, you know, sort of loosely mastering it with Weasel Walter who was living in San Francisco at the time or in Oakland. And he, uh, I was like, I need a live crowd to put in between the songs. And I was like, do you have any thoughts about a crowd who are just really aggressive? And he was like, Oh, I have the perfect crowd. And he had a bootleg of the frogs playing <laughs> where the crowd was just screaming like, Fuck you, you suck at them the whole time. So we put that on the record so that the, the audience recording that's on that record is actually an audience berating the band, the frogs. That is fucking awesome. <laughs> Yeah, kind of genius, I guess. whips yikes blah 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 you're doing ocs at the time probably i'm guessing in your bedroom and then that slowly morphs into the ocs i'm guessing yeah it was definitely a reaction after having spent time in that sort of noisy environment it was like a little bit of a respite from all that it started out as a way to like be alone and record and then slowly bring other people in but keeping it pretty quiet and ironically when you're doing the drugs that we were doing there's this weird thing that happens where uh for you know people always equate things like speed and stuff with people being really aggressive but I, my memories are when people go too far on that stuff they get weirdly quiet uh -huh. like i remember seeing people have been up for four days and they're like whispering when they talk to you and they get real weird and like there was a lot of that kind of like quality like i remember me and patrick would like stay up all night to record a record and we would do it in like a three-story hallway like uh oc ocs three and four were recorded in a stairwell literally 
where he was on one landing and I was on the next one down. And then we had mics at that the top, top, top end for all that crazy reverb on that stuff. It was all actual reverb. There's no effects on any of that stuff. It's just horribly reverby because of the space we chose. But I remember we got home that night. We recorded on a four-track cassette player. I got home that night and we were just listening to it at like dawn and I just fell asleep sitting up. <laughs> like he just came over and like hit me and he's like, hey man, and I was like, oh, I gotta go to bed. But that's like, you know, the memories I have from the, the, the sort of catalyst of that becoming an actual band and not being a solo project was like, same thing, like sort of just on my way out of a certain world that I didn't necessarily, uh, I was probably pointed out of at that point and getting towards like a more, uh, uh, mellower lifestyle, you know? It took me a long time to get my together, but at the same time, I never said no to anything. Yeah. <laughs> but that being said, it was definitely, uh, you know, there just comes, I've been very lucky with drugs and, and addiction in my life where I've, I never got hooked on heroin. So that was like, that's the big no-no. That's the one that everybody, you know, either dies from or never gets away from it. So that's like a miracle to get out of that. But everything else, I just got sick of things, you know, and I just left it behind. Like I was just done. Like one day I'd be like, I'm done with this and I don't want to do it anymore. It's making me miserable. And then I've had, I've been fortunate enough to have that sort of triumph of will in those circumstances. Uh, watching you and, and getting to see you period more periodically with the OCs, you know, you come through whatever town I was living in with more regularity. So we get to speak and catch up briefly. It was cool. I got to see you go from like I'll I'll never forget. We were standing outside of the Northern in Olympia. You guys had just played and it was great. And we we're chatting, and I was like, "Man, do you guys need a place to stay?" And you're like, "No, dog." Like, it was the first time you didn't need a place to stay. And you're like, "We're getting a hotel." <laughs> like, yeah. No yeah. offense, you're it's lovely staying at your house, but um, yeah, we're I'm over it. Uh, we. How did that feel, man? That must have been great, a great graduation I, of sorts. You know, there, we did a few years. There was like an interim period between staying at people's houses, which I loved doing. Mm -hmm. We made so many great friends that way, you True. in particular. But uh, there came a point where it was time to like, you know, you know, just everybody have a comfortable, quiet space or whatever. But what we would do initially was me and Bridget usually, unless I was too loaded, and then it would be Bridget and somebody else. Always Bridget, no matter what state she was in, I would force her to go in the hotels because she's English and a lady. So she, in middle America, they'd be like, wow, look at you. Like the guy behind the counter would just never second guess her and be like kind of enamored with her for being a, a British person in their hotel somewhere in South Dakota. So we would make her go in and do the talking with one other person. And then we would get a room and then we would go down the hallway of the hotel and open the back door and let everybody else in. And we would all sleep in the same room and pay doubled up in bed, somebody yeah, on the yeah. floor sometimes. And we did that for a couple of years. And then eventually we, would, we started getting two rooms where two people would have their own bed and the double beds. And now we're at the point, <laughs> you know, just, I've always been slow and steady wins the race, but now we're at the point where everybody gets their own room because I'm at the age now where, you know, we just kill each other. If we were sleeping on top of each other, now we're too old. Yeah. And I think, I think for mental health and for physical health, it's good for everybody to have a nice warm bed and a shower every night and, and have their own space to get away from whoever, you know? Well, I've always said, I always tell people that I've, man, I've been knowing bands and, playing in bands and stuff forever for 30 years, close to 30 years. And I've never, I've never personally known anyone that worked as hard as whatever band you're in, you know, it's the hardest working. So man, yeah, I could see over the years taking a toll if you're just not taking care of yourself. 
with a shower. Like sometimes a shower is all yeah, it takes. A shower will make you a new person. I tell you what, this year has been really educational for me because I've had to learn how to just relax. Because I mean, I've still been like more, probably more productive this year than I've ever been in my life, just based on necessity or sanity. But yeah. But at the same time, like I've had a few days recently where I'm sort of getting over the whole thing now, and I'm like, I want to get back on the road, and I'm tired of it, and I have to like force myself to just take a breath and relax, you know. But I'm still working on like three projects right now, so. I'll always be that way if I can, you know? Yeah, this is a good chance for me to ask you a question I've wanted to ask you for a really long time. Um, can you can you walk me a little bit through your process, if you can even describe it? Like, I just, you're so uh, prolific, man. I, I wait for songs to come to me, and that's why I put out a record every four years or something, you know? Right, right. Uh, what is your, do you have, like, a discipline? Do you do you follow a, what do you do? What How do you write songs? What do, how do you create? What if you can even describe that it depends on the project but i'm always playing music you know i'm always yeah. listening to music i'm always inspired by everybody else's music as well contemporary or old it doesn't matter like i'll hear a drum beat on something or i'll hear a production tweak that i really like that'll inspire me to have my own idea and often my imitations are so terrible that they're unrecognizable as having been inspired by anything sometimes yeah yeah that's that rock means, and roll like for real yeah yeah i mean you take something and make it into something else but um depends you know with ocs these days and i'm so thankful for this we just sit there and jam for hours and hours and hours yeah. and i record everything and then i go through and i take it home by myself and i'm the one who sort of dictates what we're going to keep and what we're going to toss and i go through and i'm pretty good at putting things together so i'll be like okay this jam from this day is sort of in the same tempo as this jam from a week later and it's in the same key or we'll shift keys to make things work but i have such players now that they can bring things to the table that like I can hear something in my head sometimes and I'm like, what about this? Or they'll like just bring something of their own accord that's totally outside of my wheelhouse of ideas, which is great. bring in most of the parts myself and like you know drum beats and stuff and let people sort of change them to to match their style yeah but i'm not doing that so much anymore but with you know damage bug i'll start with beats often and then uh go from there so i'll have drummers come in and play beats or i'll rip a sample or use a drum machine <laughs> I keep my phone nearby with, you know, voice notes or whatever to grab ideas and stuff. Cool. And, you know, just lately I've been doing a lot of the improv sort of stuff. And that is me just finding players that I love, that I know have the capability to spontaneously create music and know what, what they're doing enough that they can stick together without stepping on each other's toes. So that's been a pleasure. But it's a totally different world because you're not technically writing. You're just spontaneously composing. So it's very different. You know, that's improvisation so it's just there it is on tape and then i'll go in and edit it a lot like i'll pull volumes up and down to like sort of showcase moments that work better to make the songs work but for the most part that's that's where i've been leaning this year pretty heavily because obviously there's not a lot of time for people to be together and work so the improv sort of works perfect for that because it's such a quick and easy project in terms of the logistics of coming up with music there is no uh uh, there's no there's no idea going in, so there's no work. It's not like banging a, a stone with a hammer, you know? Right. And Endless Garbage is, is kind of your main improv vehicle right now? No, none of them are, really. But I guess Bent Arcana, which came out last year, was one with... The, that was the initial concept, which was uh, mostly based around this guy Ryan Sawyer from New York and this guy Pete Curlin from New York, who Pete is actually an old Providence guy from hmm. bands. 
But uh, I wanted to fly them out, and we had some miles on the uh, Castleface credit cards. So I was like, hey, get these guys out here, and we'll get them in my studio. And then uh, I did a couple projects with them. I did some projects with Nick Murray and Brad Calkins, who are two guys that have played in OCs in the past. And then Endless Garbage was a guy that lives down the street from me who I'd never met, and I heard him playing drums in his garage, so I just left a note on his car. And then he, that was the first, that was the first record I ever made that wasn't done on tape. That one was all digital because of COVID and all that shit. So I, he sent me drum tracks, and then I brought in players one at a time. The interesting thing about that record is that nobody had ever met that played on that record. So nobody was in the same room at the same time. They didn't know each other, and everybody basically did one or two passes tops over the next, the last two guys, the last three guys, you know? So that was an interesting one, and it was project. really fun to work yeah, it was just, you know, it was funny because I didn't know Ted, the drummer at all, and he was the main catalyst for the whole thing. And when I finally sent it to him and it was done, it was like a month later, I was like, I kind of did it pretty quick. And I sent it back to him, and he's a noise guy who went to Berkeley, I think, for music, you know, for drumming. And uh, But he plays, like, very frenetic, chaotic drums now. And I sent it back to him, and he was like, holy shit. He was like, his, I think his exact quote was, I never would have made anything like this in my whole life, but I love it. But he's like, but I, it's like so the opposite of what he does. Like he is truly uh, improvisational music only. I don't think there's any repeats with that guy. You know what I mean? So for him to have any sort of structure, no matter how forced in that record it is, because uh, it's sort of like a combative record where there's like patterns in the chaos of that record. I also brought in guys in that record who are phenomenal at doing things like that, like taking a drum beat that is really seemingly nonsensical, even though there is sense to it. But to the naked ear, you would imagine it's just some guy going off and making it into getting it into shape. Just an oh, interesting man. project. I can't wait to re-listen to that now that I know all that. That's so cool. Yeah, it was far out. You know, I never—I don't think I've ever left a note on somebody's car before, and I was like, "Well, this is going—they're going to go with him being like, sure, or fuck off." So I'm glad he went the other way. You know, that's cool. So uh, with the OCs, I remember when you were on In the Red. I remember thinking like, "Oh man, yeah, like they're on In the Red. This is like the pinnacle. <laughs> like they've made it. This is the best." And uh, soon after, like just Castleface just took off. How stoked are you that? you have castle face and and that basically everything is in castle face now oh man i would never go back you know i mean i still work with a couple buddies labels on enough like you know cj yeah, yeah, yeah. and i work with this guy yochen for rock as hell records out of uh austria but for the most part i love having the label with matt my partner matt jones is fully responsible for having kept it alive as long as it has been and keeping the bureaucratic and logistical end of it <clears throat> a flowing thing because if it was just me running it it would either be broken and gone or very on a much smaller scale than it is yeah. i think i probably could have done oc's records but they probably wouldn't be on mail order there'd be no special orders it would just be through revolver you know the way i work is very simple and like i said i hated school and that kind of work really reminds me of like, my job at Castleface is so easy. I just be like, this band is cool. Let's reach out to them. And then we, I, like, get to hang out with the band. <laughs> you know what it's I mean? And like, yeah, it's, it's a f***ing easy job. Whereas Matt's job is, like, he does the same thing I do, but then he's like, okay, let me facilitate fabrication. And here's a dumb idea that John had that we've never done before. So I have to figure out how, how does one make a book out of mylar? Like that, you know what I mean? So... It's true, it's true. I'm, I'm constantly throwing him curveballs, and the dude just doesn't blink. Luckily, much like myself, he's a workaholic. Yeah. So he... I, I, I've only seen Matt get pissed a couple times, and when, when he gets pissed, you're like, wow, it must be serious, because the dude's threshold is... I don't even know if he has one, man. I think it's just a wall where there should be a doorway for that guy, because he has dealt with some incredibly irritating people over the years, where like I'll be on an email thread, and I'll just email him on the side and be like, well, I'm going to go ahead and get off this thread before I burn this bridge to the ground. And he's like, yeah, I'll take over from here. And he is, uh, he's the whole, like, he's really the, the meat and potatoes behind the label. I'm just like window dressing, you know? Yeah, man. That's great though. I'm, I'm so glad you have it. I'm so glad that it seems to be working out so great for you guys. We've been this year too, man. People have been buying records from us on mail order, which has basically kept us afloat. So I'm so thankful to our fans for that, you know? 
Uh, I was going to ask you about your relationship with substances and your creativity, uh, like drugs and stuff like that, alcohol or whatever. Um, I think you pretty much kind of answered it, but I was just wondering well, if you had to, anything to else to add to that. It, I'm, I'm not sober. I still uh, drink and smoke weed. I think marijuana is the one I want to take to the grave with me because it's always been very beneficial to make me focused. Mm -hmm. You know, like things like uh, hard drugs for me never in the in the in the long term were never good for focus like i'll never understand how somebody could make a record on cocaine for instance which to me is the epitome of the opposite of creativity and music and love you know what i mean it's like that to me is like the most taking your brain and like just putting it in a blender and being like i just want to smoke cigarettes and talk in some space like right so marijuana was the always the opposite of that for me it was like a real natural like taking the edge off of me enough so I could sit down for long enough to actually make things happen. And booze, you know, I, I, ironically, I realized the other day that I hadn't had a drink in like a month and it was just by accident. That's great. Like I had some, somehow become sober just merely by not wanting to drink. So, uh, I remedied that immediately by going out and having a drink that night. <laughs> but, um, but you know, like I, I, I just, uh, on the road, we drink on the road, but I try and take it easy. The older you get, as you know, the worse a hangover gets. So oh, yeah. There's no reason to lose a day to booze. It's just not fun enough to destroy yourself over, in my opinion. But um, I don't have any qualms with it at all. And I'll tell you what, I really miss sitting in a bar and just having a drink now. So looking forward to that. Thank you, John Dwyer. That was fun. Yes, love you, Matt. I Thanks love you too, John. Me. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. I hope to see you. Yep. Thanks, Matt, for doing that interview. And thank you to Nathan Burko Gibson for painting John's portrait for this episode's artwork. This episode was edited by Miles Rosati. Thank you so much, Miles, for all your hard work. about this episode at lowprofilepodcast.com you can also catch up on old episodes if you'd like to we'll see you next time love ya Thank you.